listening to Divorce Happy Hour with your host, Christina Previtt. And John Nocklinger. We're two divorce lawyers from New Jersey here to talk about love, life, and divorce. Whether you're thinking about divorce, going through one now, or been there, done that, or if you're just a divorce voyeur, this show is for you. To learn more about us and our law firm, you can find us at centraljerseyfamilylaw.com. You can also find us on social media. Just search for NJ Divorce Solutions on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Let us know if you like the show or hate the show and what topics you'd like us to cover in the future. Please keep in mind that this show is for informational purposes only. It's not intended to take the place of legal advice. If you need legal advice, please call New Jersey Divorce Solutions at 732-384-1550 and mention this program for a free consultation. So um, today's topic is college contribution. And, um, you know, it's something that everyone, most people have gone through either as a parent or as a student themselves. Um, so what kind of experience did you have when you went to college? Well, when I went to college way back, you know, all those years ago, I know it was just yesterday for you, John. Um, basically my experience was that once I hit 18 and graduated from high school, I was, you know, like, okay, kid, you know, you're on your own. We helped you out and got you through high school and you know, now you got to pay rent and you're on your own. So that was my experience. I didn't even get 20 bucks for gas. So I did everything myself. I had to have a job. I had to get my own car. I had to pay my own insurance and, you know, take out loans for school. And, um, <laughs> you know, I don't think about it too much. I don't sit around and feel sorry for myself. But that's just how that was my experience. And I know that that's not everyone's experience. And that's not... Um, in the line of work that we do, that's not what we see very often. We, more often, we see our clients wanting to help their kids and pay for school and pay for a lot more than just school, but pay all of their living expenses too. So a lot of times people get into a dispute about that, exactly who pays and how much and you know what's a reasonable lifestyle for a college student. Yeah, it's interesting because I had a very different <clears throat> experience going to college. I was lucky enough when I went to college um, initially to be on a full scholarship, my parents didn't, I didn't have to have that conversation with them because they really didn't have to pay very much for me to go to school. But I know that um, as I went on through college and then my brother who, as we like to say in Texas, bless his heart, he didn't, <laughs> he didn't get any scholarships when he went to college. So, um, you know, my parents took out the per- parent student loans, or we call them uh, parent plus loans. Plus loans, yeah. Um, and uh, which we're going to talk about a little bit later. And uh, I know that my parents just finished paying off those loans recently. So it's the kind of thing where, you know, you've, you've, maybe you're saving for retirement and you've been paying off your debt Then your kids go to school. And if you want to pay for them to go to school, you're taking out loans and now you're indebted again. So everyone's got a very different experience. Um, I mean, I was lucky enough, um, a little bit different from Christina, I was lucky enough that my parents uh, didn't leave me with any debt when I left undergrad. Now when I went up to law school, I paid for it all on my own. And by pay for it all on my own, I mean, I'm still paying for it. And I'll be paying for it. <laughs> Me for too. Next, who knows how many years. So, but New Jersey is very unique in that most states don't require parents divorced or intact to pay for college. In New Jersey, we compel people. You, you were punished once when you got divorced and now you get punished again whenever your kids go to school because the kids or in a better place if you're divorced than if you're intact. It's kind yes, of funny. Yes, they are. It's kind of funny. I mean, if I was a kid, I'd be like, oh, God, I hope the, my parents get divorced. Because then at least 
if one of them doesn't want me to go to school, the judge will compel them both to pay. So anyway, New Jersey is very unique, which that leads us to sort of the 10 questions that you need to know answers to when we look at college contribution. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. The, the reason we're bringing this up now, the, the reason this is a good topic now is because this is really the time that if you have a senior in high school, you should be thinking about this stuff and really doing the things on this checklist pretty soon if you haven't started it already because before you know it, your child is going to be starting college and going through the whole, right now you're probably more focused on the application process and the admission process, but you really need to, to start the process talking about who's paying for what, because you can't wait till the day school starts or that day that you get a term bill in August at, to start worrying about how you're paying, just because it's a lengthy process if you're not in agreement on who's paying what. Absolutely. Okay, so the first point um, on this topic is when do you address college in a settlement agreement? Um, so depending on how old your kids are at the time, it could be a very important issue. If, For instance, if your kids are already in high school by the time that you're negotiating your settlement, then it's it's probably something that's going to be more relevant to you at that point in time. And you might be in a position already to start talking about who is going to pay for what, because you already know in a couple of years your child is going to be in college and maybe you don't expect your income to change very much over the next couple of years. So you probably are in a better situation where you can talk about those things. But if your kids are only two and four, or even if they're just in grade school, it's really too soon to start talking about that. You have no idea where you're going to be in your life over the next five to 10 years. You don't know what your kid's going to want to do. You don't know if they're going to want to stay in state or if they're even going to want to go to college at all. You know, they might just decide they want to be an actress and run off to Hollywood. So you don't really know any of that. (laughs) Whatever. That was good. I like that. Um, What do you think, John? Oh, I agree. I mean, <clears throat> whether you're going to address it or not really depends on whether or not you want to have to have the same fights and the same battles and spend more money sometime later. Um, but on the flip side, you don't want to address it when the kids are too young because too many things might change either in the law or in your personal uh, circumstances that you may not anticipate. And you might have an agreement that didn't fully um, address whatever the changes are, and you might be stuck with a bad um, situation. So, I mean, as long as long as... As far as I'm concerned, if the kids are in high school, you should address it in your agreement. Absolutely. Period. If they're younger than high school, I think there's sort of a split sort of decision on whether you address it, how much detail you put into the agreement, whether you just rely upon what the law is going to be at that time. Because I think or I fully anticipate that there's going to be a movement to change the law at some point. Yeah, I mean, I think it really has already started. Um, I I expect that at some point in the future, not too distant future, the law will be that a parent doesn't have an obligation to pay for college. Right now, that is the law in the state of New Jersey that you do have to contribute. Um, You know, to the, the extent to which you have to contribute is not, there's no bright line rule for that. But most likely, most parents will be on the hook for some contribution towards college. But I think that may change. And that's what we're all going to be doing whenever it changes, because I really think this is one of the most unfair 
laws that we have. Well, you know, there are a lot of people, though, that at lawyers and just the public in general that feel that this law is favorable because a lot of people do want to help their kids go to school. And if you have one parent that feels that way and the other one doesn't, the parent that wants to help will not be able to compel the other one to contribute any longer. So yeah. it's almost like the nice guy will be the one that gets stuck for pay- paying for everything. Yeah, it's, it's what we always do, though. We try to make one-size-fits-all for everybody, and it ends up being unfair to a lot of people. Yeah, I think what what is unfair sometimes is when you have a situation where maybe you have someone like me who did put themselves through school. If I have a child, I may feel the same way, that... I did it, and I feel like my child should have to do that too. You're not really allowed to have that opinion if your spouse doesn't agree. Oh, absolutely. So <clears throat> now that you've decided that you want to address it in your settlement agreement, number two question is how do you actually address the college expenses in terms of how they're divided in your agreement? Well, if, you're, if your kids are a senior in high school, let's say, um, you know what your financial circumstances are, you know what your spouse's financial circumstances are. You're getting a divorce, so you know how much each of you is going to have in terms of assets and liabilities, and you know what everyone's income is. You can go ahead and decide exactly how you're splitting college then. There's no point in six months re-litigating. You might as well go ahead and figure it out then. But what, yeah. but what if... But what if it's a little bit earlier, Christina? Let's say it's, you know, let's say it's your freshman, your kids are a freshman in high school, so you want to address it. And But let's say you're representing the spouse that has more money, the person that would, let's say, have to contribute more. What would you say that you would put into a settlement agreement to protect that person? Well, what I usually do in that instance, I speak with my client and advise them that I believe that the law may change relatively soon. Um, And this is even more relevant if the kids are younger. Um, That, you know, if you agree in your agreement to pay for something, if it's definitive that you're definitely going to contribute, then you're probably not going to be able to wiggle out of that later if the law changes. So if you would like to take advantage of the change in the law at a later date, you probably should not put a provision where you're absolutely agreeing to pay. An alternative for that person may be that you'll pay in accordance with the law at that time. So that means if the law does change and you don't have an obligation according to the law, then that's what would apply. I have to say, though, I have raised this issue with with many parents that are the what we call the advantaged spouse. They're the ones making more money. And every one of them has said, no, I, I want to pay for my child's college, so I'm not going to try to wiggle out of that. So they're comfortable putting it in the agreement. Well, you know what? I've, I've seen situations where adversaries... Um, where I've represented the person making more money and there's no end in sight to the fact they'll be making more money. I've gotten settlement offers from adversaries who represent people making a lot less who just say we're going to split college 50-50. Now, I don't like that. I don't really like doing that ever unless you have the child is about to go to school and you've already agreed that that's what we want to do. But if it's too far off into the future, even if it's two years from now, I don't really like to put a proportion there, even if it's 50-50, because there's just too much that could change. What if, what if you lose your job and you're really struggling and you end up living off of assets? And you can no longer pay 50%. You're stuck with it. You well, that, can't change it. I think that's really the key is that uh, these settlement agreements, um, judges will enforce the words. And I will tell you, um, there is a movement afoot um, 
maybe it's the intermediary step between where we are now and where we might be in the future with no college contribution, where I see judges and lawyers pushing this one-third, one-third, one-third rule where mom pays for yeah. a third, dad pays for a third, and the kid pays for a third. I don't really like that either because that just assumes that everybody's on equal footing. No, absolutely. But it's, it's something it's popular. Um, if you're going through a divorce and, uh, or if you're in a situation where you're dealing with college expenses after your divorce, you may hear something about this one-third, one-third, one-third rule um, and just know that it's out there and it may or may not be fair to your case. But I think why people like it is it has the student have some skin in the game. Yeah, I think it's I think it's fair, of course, for me. I, I wouldn't be offended if the child had to pay for everything because that's what I did. But but those are my values, and I don't feel it's appropriate for me to impose my values on other families. So if other families think that that's appropriate for their child to contribute, then they should talk about that, and they should have that reflected somehow in their agreement. What we see more typically is that there will be a provision that the child will, will apply for all forms of financial aid and take out you know, guaranteed student loans or whatever they may have available to them. And everything on top of that or after that's applied, that's what the parents decide who's paying what there absolutely. between the two of them. No, absolutely. So to answer the question um, with respect to how do you address it, you can be as specific as you want to be, but it really depends on your circumstances or just indicate it very broadly that you'll just determine the issue at the time. But I think the important point there is that you need to talk with your attorney at the time and determine, is it in my best interest, in my child's best interest to address this in a more specific way or maybe even just to leave it out entirely? Mm -hmm. The key being think about your future and think about um, what, what you really need out of life. So, all right. So moving on to number three. Yeah, so when do you start the process? So I think we touched on that already. And if you, if you want, I think once your child is a senior in high school, I would suggest no later than January. I know that you're probably preoccupied with admissions and the whole application process, but you really have to consider all of it together. You have to consider admissions, what schools you're applying to, what schools you may want to visit, because I know a lot of people have disputes over that and because that can become very expensive. And filling out the FAFSA, the, the free application for federal student aid, and talking about how much financial aid they may get, but who, who's going to pay? Because oftentimes what we see in our offices, you have maybe the mom doing it, maybe the dad. Someone is sort of the lead on the on that particular issue and the other one's not really doing much you know mom may be the one doing it and sending dad emails here and there that whatever yeah whatever whatever um and or what you get sometimes i'm sure you've seen this both ways john is you get the mom and i'm generalizing because sometimes it's the dad but you might get the mom who's doing everything and maybe intentionally or not, leaving out dad completely. You know, dad doesn't get any say in what schools the kid applies to and, you know, going to the the schools to visit and, and all of that. So those are things you have to start talking about early. I, I say January. So we're now in March, almost April. If you haven't started doing any of that, you really should because you're going to be behind the eight ball come June, July, August. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's too late right now. You could still do it. But 
I mean, I think January is really the latest you should do it. I mean, the way the way college has been working now is that most kids are actually. Sean, um, you're not drinking your wine. I'm, I'm trying to pay attention. What, what your, your your little lecture you just gave was so like enthralling that I had to listen to every. Uh, everyone, take note. Uh, Christina's on her second glass, so I think it's going to give him better. So. Um, yeah, I don't think it's too early to start. In fact, I think um, you, the earlier you start, the better. So let's move on to number four, which is what's included in college expenses. So we'll start this before the break. Um, some things are very easy. Tuition, fees, room and board. Mandatory fees, right? Like well, yeah. registration fees and things like yeah, that. Yeah, mandatory fees. Um, textbook and course related materials. So that includes, you know, if you've got like, you know, the science labs and stuff and you have to go out and buy all those supplies that you have to bring with you. Um, books. Absolutely. And then there's, and then there's other, then there's a bunch of other things that people fight about. Those are the easy things that we just went through. Everything else people fight about, but the things that we think are included in college expenses are, um, the gym and fitness center. If there's if you go to a university where there's lots of sports going on, particularly Division One schools, um, you've got to pay for those sports tickets. I think that's included in college expenses. Health insurance. Um, Christina was telling me earlier when we were preparing for the show that um, it's automatically put on your bill. But if you have health insurance, or I guess even if you don't, actually under the new healthcare law, you, I think everyone has to have health insurance. Yeah, so. I mean, I've, I've seen that, and that's the reason I noticed it, because it's become an issue in some of my cases where the father, let's say, was maintaining the child on his health insurance and paying for it, obviously, but then they were charging the child on the, their term bill every year. And you really have to read the fine print, I think, with the school and, and whatever their health policies are there. They might have to pay that fee just to have access to clinics and things like that. So if, if you think that's important, you know, you should probably keep that. Well, but you I should th- investigate because you could be paying for health insurance twice. Well, I, I mean, that was a very important point. I mean, yes. not for just college. Read the mm-hmm. fine print. I don't understand why people don't read everything um, when they're about to sign up for something, read the fine print. You find so much information in the fine print. Yeah, it usually becomes more of an issue when you've got, let's say mom's the one who doesn't want to pay, and she starts scrutinizing the bill, and she sees, well, why why is there a $500 health insurance charge on there? No. Um, I kind of, I don't know if I agree with you about the sports tickets, though, John. <laughs> I don't agree that it's automatically included. I mean, obviously, I think maybe we forgot to mention that you're guided by whatever is in your settlement agreement. So some of the settlement agreements will be very specific and say what's included. But generally, I see that more as recreation. I don't really see that as a necessary college expense. Mm -mm -mm. Well, let's go to something else that uh, people might fight about. Greek expenses, fraternities and sororities. Is that included? Again, you're guided by your settlement agreement, but I think if push comes to shove and you're in court, I, probably an analysis would would include some consideration of what the child's lifestyle is and maybe what the parties anticipated they would be paying for. But I don't think that that's automatically included. I don't think that that's just uh, an automatic part of going to college. Oh, I could not agree with you more. Um, but things that I do think are included, and I think we both agree, Transportation to and from school. So depending on where the school is, that might mean airfare, or that might just mean supplying a car for the child to be able to drive back and forth to school. And then you have to 
take note of what the transportation system is like at the school. A lot of schools have bus systems, so maybe the child doesn't need a car while at school, or maybe the kid needs a car. But those are definitely expenses that are included, but it just it's a matter of degree and what kind of expenses Yeah, and, are and I do think there's some overlap with child support, because college expenses is... I think is distinct from the child support payment that may be from one party to the other. So I certainly think the argument can be made that if let's say mom, I'm going to generalize mom is getting child support, that transportation might be included in some of that. So I don't think there's no bright line rule there. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the bottom line is it's unclear what things beyond the mandatory things are included in college expenses, but that's certainly something you'll negotiate in your settlement agreement. Or you'll argue to a judge. So um, moving on to number five, which is how do you handle pre-college expenses? So how do you handle them? Yeah, so, so that what we consider to be pre-college expenses are some of the things we've mentioned already, like admissions fees and applic- the applications fees, and maybe you have to make a deposit. And I think visiting campuses, is if that's something that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, that's I consider that generally to be part of college expenses, but I think that mentality may be because I generally see that written in settlement agreements, and I think that, there you go, John, good. So you're not too far behind me with the wine. I think that's most people generally, when, when they start discussing these things, I think most people agree that that's all part of the whole college expenses analysis. Yeah, I don't think any of that's included in child support. I think that's all part of the college expenses. And um, I encourage people, when you're doing a settlement agreement, go ahead and specify those things so that you don't have the argument. Um, it's very important. I think the visits to schools, I've seen that come up quite a bit. Um, what's too much? You know, Which parent gets to go? So those are things that you should address first before you start getting into arguments later on. So number six is, how does the school selection process work? And uh, quite frankly, uh, you know, I, being, I'm from Texas, if you missed our first show, so um, it's a little bit different down there. Everyone goes to, a, most people go to a big state school. I thought you just talked funny, John. Oh, <laughs> bless your heart. I love you. <laughs> Isn't that just funny? Here, here you go. I am drunk right now. <laughs> well, I'm not really drunk. Drinking wine. Yeah. <laughs> I'll love you a lot more later. <laughs> I was going to say, tell the, tell the cops of Lambertville when you're driving home. <laughs> so, um, you know, you're going to want to look and see um, what the aptitude is of the child. I mean, if you've got a, if you've got a kid that in high school was making B, Cs, and Ds, um, should you be going on three or four trips out to schools that they have no chance of getting into? Yeah, like know. Harvard, yeah, or Stanford. Should, <laughs> or should they be going to uh, an expensive private school where they're getting no scholarships and the parties are having to pay $50,000 a year if they weren't very good in high school? Maybe they should go to you know, a community college for a couple of years, you know, one of the county community colleges, and get two years under their belt, which, quite frankly, I think from a cost perspective, yeah. more, more students should take advantage of. Yeah, I think what, the dispute that we see very often is you get one parent that really wants to indulge the child and let them go wherever they want. You know, maybe they want to... I, I had a case one time, the kid wanted to go to Fordham, <laughs> and it was extremely expensive. It was at least, you know, at the time, I think it was $40,000 
well, I don't remember if it was a year or per semester, but at the time it was extremely expensive. And she really didn't have any reason that she needed to go to Fordham. She just wanted to live in New York and she had friends there. And that was really the reason she wanted to go there. Whatever. Yeah, that's what she sounded like too. And, um, you know, I think you have to think about those things that you might have one parent that says, you know, why don't you stay in New Jersey and go to Rutgers and see if that works for you first. I think those are valid objections. No, I think it, I think it is. And, you know, where the kid's going to go to school, um, this is where the communication bef- while you're deciding where the kid goes to school with both parents is important because both parents need to decide, do you have the financial wherewithal for them to go to whatever school they're looking at? And if they don't have that wherewithal, they shouldn't be going. I mean, there are certain exceptions. I mean, my view is if your child gets into an Ivy League school, mm-hmm you should mortgage everything you own so they can go to an Ivy League school because they will get such a step up on everyone else yeah. in the world because, unfortunately, that's still the way our country works. That's right. But I just want to point out, because this is something that I'm very sensitive about, is those are your values. Yeah. So somebody else might not feel that way. So you, you do have to take that into consideration. All somebody the- else might say, I'm not going to get into a million dollars in debt into my retirement so that my child can go to Harvard. Yeah, although I will tell you that um, I, I think most judges would err on the side of making parents contribute a little bit more if their child is that intelligent and they're getting into that quality of school because really college expenses all goes back to the child. It's what's in the best interest of the child. It's not what's in the best interest of the parties or what's good for them because if it was good for them, the parent that's really the problem probably doesn't want to pay a dime anyway and if they have it their way, they're, you know, valedictorian from Colts Neck High School or something, one of the best schools in the state, should be going to, oh, I don't know, Middlesex County Community College because that, that's cheap for them. So, you know. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I agree with that. I, I see too many parents say, well, first of all, I have to say I'm so sick of hearing about this Rutgers rule. I get so many parents that ask me about this Rutgers rule. There is no such thing. Have you ever heard? I mean, we've heard clients say it, but it doesn't exist in law. There's, people seem to think there's this rule that you can limit tuition to the cost of an in-state college. It, this is me every time I'm asked that question. <laughs> I mean, we ask for it, but there's no law that says you have to do that. So keep that in mind as well. Oh, absolutely. So the, so that's a little, um, you know, so you have to be cognizant of uh, where kids are going to school. So that leads to number seven, which is actually a subspecialty of my intelligent, right. beautiful partner over a subspecialty. here. Subspecialty. So number seven, how does financial aid factor into yes. college contribution? Um, well, I think we mentioned it a little bit earlier, and I will say that I worked as a financial aid advisor at a college for probably about five years before, before I was an attorney. Yes, quite an accomplishment. And so I think I, I, that information that I learned during that time has been very valuable working in family law because most people don't really understand exactly what the financial aid process is. They don't even really understand what financial aid is. And it's different types of aid, such as grants or student loans, that a child can take out just by virtue of filling out a FAFSA form. So if you have a child going to college, you probably already know what a FAFSA form is. You've probably heard it a million times. Um, so when you fill that out, you are your child is applying for different types of aid, and you're going to get different letters telling you whether he or she was eligible for one type of aid. 
Um, you know, TAG is one. It's a student uh, grant in the state of Was New Jersey. Was that English? <laughs> oh, oh, shampoo. Um, you know, Pell is a federal grant. And then there's also student loans. And I will tell you that every student qualifies for a student loan, uh, a Stafford student loan, if as long as they are meeting certain requirements in school, I think you have to be registered for at least six credits. And everybody gets this. The only people that don't are ones that have defaulted on a previous student loan. Um, and I think also if you've committed certain drug offenses, you're not eligible for a period of time. But you know, most people aren't going to fall into that category. So really look into that. You have to analyze what your financial aid documents you're getting from school and, and ask questions. Go to your financial aid office and ask questions. Um, but be, be very mindful of that. And the dads should be getting that information. The moms should be getting that information to make sure that they're not paying for something that is the child's already getting from the school. And, and everything you just heard Christina say is way more than your attorney's going to know. Trust me. Cause yeah. I, cause I don't know anytime this even comes up, I just look at her and I say, please help me because it's really not something that many people know. In fact, everyone who fills out the FAFSA form, I always hear all the time is who should fill it out? Should yeah. dad fill it out? Mom fill it out? What's going on? What, what part of the other party's assets should be on the form? Should the child child's working? Should that be on the form? There's so many questions. You really, um, I think once you figure out which school you're going to, there's probably a financial aid officer That's at the right. school that you should talk to and find out exactly Absolutely. what you should do to get the most money, um, most free money, number one, and then the lowest interest money, number two. Um, I got to tell you right now, can you believe the student loan interest is approaching 7% for a federal loan? I can't believe it. I can't believe how much it costs to go to college. I mean, and, and all they would have to do is just lower the interest rate. I mean, really. I, I, I don't even understand. Um, you know, foreign people, other countries buy our debt and at lower interest rates than our own students are borrowing money from the government. It's outrageous. But I don't think anyone really, I don't hear any, I certainly don't hear your man Donald Trump talking about it. I heard Hillary talking about it. Did you? Mm-hmm. Was she telling the truth? I don't know. You know, she's a good liar. <laughs> yeah, well, she is a she is a lawyer. She has a good poker face. Yeah. Unlike to, Donald Trump, do you see some of the faces he makes? To, to quote to quote the uh, to quote the kid <laughs> on a uh, liar liar when the teacher asks, "What does your do- uh, father do for a living?" He goes, uh, "He's a liar," and the teacher's like, "Well, well." What do you mean? Well, he goes to court and talks to the judge, and the teacher's like, oh, you mean a lawyer. <laughs> and he goes, and he just goes, mm, like, same thing. <laughs> um, we don't all lie. No, but, you know, plenty of, plenty of lawyers do. Yeah, so that's that's, let's move on to number eight. Where, um, what situations where one parent is alienated from the child um, going to college um, cause some level of concern in these cases? And um, we do have a case out there where basically um, a, a girl went to college for, I think, the entire time, and then they made an application to try to get the dad to pay for the loans that she incurred. Four years after, when yeah. she was done? Yeah. but And she had had no contact with him, I think, in many, many years. I don't know how long. But that, yeah. happens, that happens quite frequently, where, you know, in a divorce, uh, children take sides. Um, they're pissed off at dad for whatever reason. They're pissed off at mom for whatever reason. And unless there's a legitimate reason why there's no relationship, um, for example, was there child abuse of some kind? Was there some kind of physical violence? Is there some reason why the child doesn't want to have a relationship? Or alternatively, 
has the parent who's sort of not having the relationship, have they been trying to have a relationship and the child sort of been brushing them off? If that's the case, there is an argument to be made that the parent that's been alienated um, shouldn't have to pay for college. I mean, you shouldn't have to pay for college for the kid that wants to have nothing to do with you. Yeah, and I, I really think what's important here is the reason that there's no contact. Because if it's because, I'm going to generalize again, I don't want to offend anyone. If dad just walked off and never saw the kid, it never made any effort to see the kid, that's not going to do it. If mom, however, was intentionally interfering with the, the parent-child relationship with, with the other parent, then for a period of time, you know, not a couple of weeks, uh, that really made the relationship deteriorate, then I think there's an argument to be made that dad shouldn't pay. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, it's an argument to be made. I can tell you it's not a very effective argument. Judges I've never have- seen it win. Yeah, I haven't seen it win either, but I will tell you that there is a statute that is under consideration at the state legislature that um, the Bar Association has been supporting that would specifically make part of the statute that if a child um, without cause doesn't have a relationship with one parent, that parent would not have to pay for college. So there is some movement afoot to um, make make college more fair in that respect, because I think that's why a lot of people are really pissed off about the fact that they might have to pay for college. So moving on to number nine, when is enough enough? Yeah, so what we mean by that is when are you done? When, how long does this kid get to go to school? You know, if you've got a kid uh, like Sean Penn in, what, what is it, Fast Times at Richmond <laughs> I, I'm really dating myself now, um, you know, who just goes to school and smokes weed all day and, you know, is taking ceramics and, you know, basket weaving for four years. When do you get, <laughs> when are you off the hook? So generally... And this is usually in your settlement agreement, but if you're crafting your settlement agreement right now, you want to consider how long do I really give this kid a reasonable amount of time to finish college? You know, sometimes four years is not enough. We we usually think of college as being four years, but there are times when your kid might be there for five years or sometimes even a little bit longer. Yeah, certain majors like engineering, yes. architecture. Yeah. yeah, really, it depends on the major. I know I've seen many times where you have a kid that changes his or her major and they end up having to stay a little bit longer. So I think really the, the question is, why are they there longer? than the four years. I often see a settlement agreement that says that they'll pay for college, undergraduate college, but in no event beyond the kid turning age 22 or 23. I don't really love those. I don't really love those provisions because I think that they don't take into consideration why the kid is in school longer. So, you know, maybe the kid took a leave of absence for a medical reason and and then had to go back. So there could be any number of reasons why the child is in school longer. But I think the short answer to this is as long as they're diligently pursuing their education and they're they're passing, you know, doing well enough, um, I I think you're on the hook. Well, and I will say... um... Just one thing to keep in mind, generally speaking, judges can override what's in your in your settlement agreement because anything regarding your child, any support provisions regarding your child, um, the judge does not have to abide by. So even if you put in your agreement, um, let's say you're the you're the the, the parent that wants your, to not pay anymore, even if the agreement says you're only going to pay to 22 or 23 or only four years, if the child had some reason why they're in school longer, the judge can say, I don't care what's in your agreement. 
because there is law out there that says that um, the parents cannot uh, negotiate away the rights of the child. So, yeah. so just keep that in mind whenever you do these agreements, that just because your agreement says something doesn't mean it's going to be so. In fact, I've started in my in emancipation provisions, I've started just saying pursuant to New Jersey law. Because I think if you start trying to characterize exactly when it's going to terminate, you're going to automatically miss some situation that's going to come up and you're going to lead to more disputes. So just say percent to New Jersey law, and then that usually means when they graduate from undergrad, unless they're an undergrad for yeah, you know, and seven I, years or We something. did talk about in another show the, um, the new statute with respect to child support and it potentially terminating when the child turns age 19. We don't have enough time to get into that again, but we'll post a link on our Facebook page so that people can listen to that if that's something that's relevant to their situation. Right, and, I, and, I, and also whether or not the, the child's making the right kind of grades, whether they're behaving. I've had this come up many, many times where a child you know, has a 2.0 GPA, I mean, to me, that means they're not trying. And if they, if they are trying, they're in the wrong school. Maybe they should be in community college, not a college that's expensive. And then behavior. I mean, are they getting into fights? Have they been suspended, expelled, whatever? Maybe college is not for them. So some other things to keep in mind. So lastly, what happens, number 10, what happens if you cannot reach an agreement? Well, that means you're going to court. And if you're going to court, um, you're going to spend a lot of money, number one. And uh, number two, the process could take an extreme long time. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more in the war story today. But um, what's the first step? Yeah. Whenever uh, you, whenever you. Have well, to the start first the thing you have to do, I always recommend that people start a dialogue if they haven't been doing that already. Um, but generally, you can either start by trying to send a letter from an attorney to the other side and make the suggestion that we we exchange documents if necessary, and that we really start talking about. Uh, who's paying for what. If that doesn't work, and I usually don't give a whole lot of time for the other side to reach out to me, you have to file a motion. That, that's really the only way to do it. You have to initiate a court proceeding. And then usually, usually this is the kind of motion that will lead to a hearing, which is why we're telling you you need to get started no later than January so that if you file a motion and you go all the way through a hearing, yeah, might get done before September, but I will tell you that's even very unlikely for all the reasons we've told you in past shows about there not being enough judges. Yeah, that's really the reason that we emphasize starting early, because if you can't agree and you have to involve the court, that's that's really what's going to take all the time. You have to get that ball rolling very early. You can't just file a motion in August, which I see people do all the time, but you really, you really, it's difficult when you do that because you're just not going to get the relief that you want in time. Which, which will lead, which leads us to war stories. <laughs> I don't know if that's really funny or just really sad. <laughs> That's what it sounds like in our office every day. <laughs> it does. So, uh, or the whatever. <laughs> yeah, the whatever. Um, so the war story um, has to do with this, um, with college contributions. So I have a case that um, the motion to con- compel the father to contribute to college was filed, I believe, in June of 2014. It is now March of 2016, and the case is not resolved. <laughs> The child started school in September 2014. So now 
This child is almost done with the second full year of college, and again, we have no resolution to the case. Um, How, John? How is that possible? <laughs> that is that is the court system that we're all working in, and I will tell you that in the at the end of the day, you don't know you don't know if uh, if you don't know if. Uh, the judge is going to move quickly, move slowly. You don't know what kind of cooperation you're going to have. So you have to assume it's going to take a very long time, and it's not going to resolve very quickly. But in in these cases, people are entitled to discovery. They're entitled to uh, exchange information. And so a lot of those kinds of disputes can come up. And in this particular case, the father didn't cooperate with anything. We had to be in front of the judge multiple times to get him to compel him to um, cooperate. And uh, he was given multiple opportunities because judges, I will say, um, err on the side of caution, I would say, for the most part. They want to give everyone as many opportunities as possible. And uh, this guy didn't, con- didn't cooperate at all. And since he didn't cooperate at all, um, things moved on and on and on. And now here we are, and what this judge did and what a lot of judges do is they just say, okay, you guys are just going to split things equally. You're going to split things a certain way until we have a hearing. But, or they just send you to mediation. Yeah. So it's just one thing to keep in mind. You need to keep in mind um, you know, how long this process takes, and it always takes longer than you think it's going to take. It's going to take much longer than your attorney tells you. Trust me. Um, I, I have gotten to the point now where I don't even give people estimates anymore. I just say it's going to take a long time. I can't tell you how long, but it's going to take a long time. Uh, so start as early as you can, and I implore everybody to use um, alternative forms of, of alternative forms of dispute resolution, mediation, arbitration, any way to make things move much quicker. So I hope this gave everyone a little uh, idea of uh, college contribution. There's much more than what we said today. But if you have any questions for us, feel free to email us at divorceduo at gmail.com. Visit us. Learn more about Christina and I at centraljerseyfamilylaw.com. 